My name is David Mashi, and I'm the editor of Discourse, an online journal of politics, economics, and culture, published by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Welcome to the Discourse Magazine podcast. In this 14th installment of our series on liberalism, Ben Klutzi, director of academic outreach here at Mercatus, sits down with Tara Burton to discuss her 2020 book, Strange Rights, New Religions for a Godless World. In particular, Klutzi and Burton focus on the rise of institutionalist ideologies and practices that have accompanied the growing anti-institutional sentiments we've seen in the United States and elsewhere. Burton received her doctorate in theology in 2017 from Trinity College, Oxford, where she was also a Clarendon scholar. Her debut novel, 2018's Social Creature, was named a Book of the Year by the New York Times, New York's Vulture, and The Guardian. She's currently a columnist at the Religion News Service and a contributing editor at American Purpose. She also co-writes the Substack newsletter, Line of Beauty. The audio and transcript of this conversation have been slightly edited for clarity. Thank you so much, Dr. Burton, for joining us today. I am delighted to be here. Excellent. So I'd like to start off by asking about your own journey into the world of strange rights and and new religions. You write about your time visiting Sleep No More, uh, and I'm hoping you can share some more about how you came to be interested in the topic of your new book and, and your own sort of personal experiences in the world of what you call remixed religion. Sure. I was about 25, 26 when I came back to, to New York, where I'm from, and I'd been doing a doctorate in theology over in the UK and very much sort of surrounded by a certain kind of very traditional view of religion, say. And then when I came back to New York, I started working for Vox.com as their religion correspondent and ended up covering for them increasingly not just religion as traditionally understood, but yoga, witchcraft, wellness, culture, anything in the kind of broader ambit of, of contemporary spirituality. And there was something about, I think, coming back to New York and having a bit of a, a toe in each world professionally, but also a toe in each world personally, which is to say, being in your 20s in New York City, you do get exposed to, you know, every fifth party you go to has some sort of like, slightly witchy vibe, or wellness is something that you're just swimming in. And I found it incredibly fascinating, especially to kind of have my theologian hat on and see what I was experiencing through that lens. And that became Strange Rights. And originally, Strange Rights was going to be a book about cults in a much more explicit way. And then as the research went on, as I did more and more work for Vox that kind of brought me into the wellness orbit, the more interested I was in talking about not distinct organizations or even like formal groups that might be termed uh, pejoratively cults, things like, I don't know, Nixvium, um, but rather what are the kind of ingredients in this cultural soup of remixed religion and, and how are these sort of elements of our spiritual lives, our ethical lives, our, our search for meaning or search for community or search for ritual, 
what is encoded in the life of, I won't say your typical millennial, because I do think that the book definitely has certain parameters. I think that this is more common in, let's say, cities or or politically progressive places. But I I would make the case that uh, wherever you are in America, whatever your religious background, your community affiliation, you've probably been exposed to some of this. Uh, I think that's only becoming more and more true. I see. So in the book, you mentioned that you were not just a fly on the wall with sleep no more. You became a fan and at some point you became a fanatic. How did that happen? Oh, gosh. Well, I think there was something. And and at the time I was, you know, not particularly religious or observant, but probably like spiritually hungry in a way that many people are. And the experience of this, this intense artistic experience, this kind of engagement with a with another world, which is what so Sleep No More, which is a theater production by the British theater company Punch Drunk based on Macbeth and Hitchcock's Rebecca. And um, they don't like the term immersive, but it's what it is. Uh, immersive theater that you wander through the space, you're masked and you have these interactions with various cast members who might take you into a private room, give you a private scene. What's really interesting about that theater experience is it sort of centers the audience, the audience's choice. You decide what character you want to follow. You decide what rooms you want to enter. There's about a hundred different rooms full of different things to see and explore. And what I think is so fascinating about Sleep No More and the fandom that arose around it is that I think the popularity of immersive theater or the experiential theatrical production I think says something about the way in which we are increasingly called to be, want to be active participants in what we're experiencing, that the kind of theater of the 2000s is about the importance of the agency of the audience member slash consumer for good and for ill. And I think that my my love of Sleep No More, which was at the time very pure and is now somewhat more adulterated by time and perspective, <laughs> although I still appreciate it as an art form. But the the idea that like at the same time we are hungering to kind of be in these spaces, be in these moments that are transcendent, that suggest ritual, that suggest a kind of moment of the sacred, but that the way in which we generally want to approach them is as someone who is actively making a choice about the kind of experiences we have and having a kind of agency that is not necessarily the case in, let's say, going to Sunday Mass. There's a lot to be said for it, but also that this is very much the paradigm through which we can talk about broader approaches to cultural experience, broader approaches to spiritual experience, which is to say, this isn't just like this theater is not just a cool thing that is popular in, you know, New York because it's trendy, but rather that more consistently, culturally speaking, when it comes to the most aesthetically, spiritually fulfilling or intense experiences that we seek out, the common factor there is a fascination with the primacy of the individual to kind of curate it. And that became a window into, uh, strange rights more broadly, which posits that our religious lives are look like this, that it is about wanting to curate a hyper-bespoke experience predicated on our own desires and interests to create our own religion. 
Right, right. Now, so before we get further into the ideas of the book, you had mentioned earlier that before the term you were thinking about was, you know, cult. Uh, but then as you did your research and as you went about writing the book, you decided to talk about religion more broadly. Can you unpack for us what religion is? It seems you use a fairly broad definition. So help us understand the framework or criteria you use to identify sort of various subcultures or ecosystems as a religion. Sure. The caveat there is I don't think you you can necessarily uh, define religion easily. There have been as many definitions of religion as there are scholars of religion. And to say, you know, it requires this or that, chances are you are going to find at least one, if not several systems commonly thought of religions that don't fit into the category. A more useful way to talk about the question of our you know, religious life is to talk about what are some of the elements that unorganized religion would traditionally be composed of and what are the kind of roles that it might play in, in a person's life or a community's life. And then how are these particular needs being met by things that we don't necessarily traditionally think of as a religion. So in my book, um, I identify a few. There is meaning, uh, which is to say uh, pretty reductionistically, what's it all about? What's it all for? These sort of broader questions about the universe. There's purpose, which is related to meaning, but more intimate. It is okay, here is what the world is, here is the status of the world, what is my place in it? How do I, with my own life, um, interface in some way with the sort of cosmic narrative underlying the world as it is? There is community, relatively self-explanatory. How does meaning and purpose, how do, how do these things interact with my relationship with those people around me? Who are these people around me? How do I understand them? How do we work together. And then there's ritual. Just what are the what are the concrete regular practices that I can do in my life with community or alone that help me feel connected to this wider story that I'm telling or experiencing. And obviously, the way that I'm talking about these things now are sort of a little bit individualistic. There's a little bit of a sense of these are needs that are being filled. And I'm not sure if that is sort of the ontologically right framing, but I think in contemporary religious, the contemporary American religious landscape, I think these are increasingly framed as individual human needs that need to be met by certain organizations. And obviously, something that's missing there is a truth claims. You know, is it true? Is it right? I think increasingly, the narrative around that has shifted to like, does this work for you? Does this make your life better? Are you improved by it? Are your needs being met by it? Which are separate kinds of questions from, is God real? What does this mean? So I think that there is a, a way in which the contemporary approach to these building blocks of religious life does tend to be quite hyper-individualistic. Really interesting. So I guess... Our desire for these things, you know, meaning, purpose, community, and rituals, they've sort of driven us towards certain things, right? Away from institutionalized religion, what you observe is that we've, we've become a more religiously remixed culture. And uh, you talk about three categories, the SBNR, spiritual but not religious, uh, the faithful nuns, and the religious hybrids. 
as I was reading, I often would get lost in where the distinction distinctions are. Can you talk about what the distinguishing features are of, of each of these? Sure. So, um, and I will say that there, there actually is a little bit of an overlap between those three right. groups. Um, it, but the, the, the wider question that I want to ask is, who are the group of people or the groups of people who have what they would think of as a rich spiritual life or a sort of belief in something, but who do not fit into the easy category of like, I belong to this religion, I'm checking it on a form. And I also, this is what I believe, this is what I practice, or at least this is what I affirm that I believe in and practice. Often, the bigger picture of religion in America is a sort of easily given as we are getting more secular. Statistics that are often trotted out to defend this include the fact that about a quarter of Americans are religiously unaffiliated. They do not belong to a, an or, the kind of organized religion who that exists in like a checkbox on a census. And that number goes up to about 36% of young millennials and Zoomers at Generation Z. However, while it is completely fair to say that the American religious landscape is tilting against organized religion. It is not true to say that uh, America is more secular or less religious. And there's a few different statistics that bear that out. My personal favorite is that 72% of um, self-proclaimed religiously unaffiliated say that they either believe in God or some higher power. So with that in mind, there's a, a few different ways of looking at identifying people who might be remixed, but who might not show up on a form as easily because they might check the none, N-O-N-E box, the religiously unaffiliated box on a form, and yet actually be quite spiritually active. So how do you find these people? And one way is who self-describes as spiritual but not religious. And that's about, I want to say about 20% of the population. It depends on the exact study, but it's it's usually around there. And these, these are people who may or may not also tick another box in the form. They might say, like, I'm Jewish, or like, I'm Christian, like, I guess, like, Christmas and Easter, fine. But their primary self-identification is, I am not religious. I am not, like, my religious life is not wedded to the tradition with which I might, for cultural reasons or, or for family reasons, identify. But I do identify as spiritual. Related to that group, the faithful nuns are people who might say, I'm nothing, I don't identify with any religious group, but who will on follow-up questions say, I do believe in a higher power, I believe in, or I practice certain kinds of, whether it's meditation or something kind of in the the witch orbit, that there are sort of spiritual practices I do to get in touch with the divine. So that's group two. And group three, um, which is another way of, of looking at it, is saying, all right, who are people that say I'm Christian, I'm Jewish, I'm Muslim on the forum, but who, again, follow-up questions or breaking down their actual beliefs and practices have a kind of hybrid model where they're sort of incorporating different practices, different beliefs into their own kind of perhaps a little bit contradictory, but individualistic traditions. So a, a very a number that I always go back to is that I think it's about, I want to say 28% of Christians, of self-identified Christians, say they believe in reincarnation. That is, of course, not something that um, <laughs> Orthodox Christian theology would say is even like within the realm of Christian views of the afterlife. It's actually pretty incompatible with doctrinal tenets about what 
Christians generally view of the like e- even within there's a, a range depending on your denomination. This is this is pretty much not something you would find as Orthodox. And yet to say, you know, what does it mean to say, well, I'm Christian, that is how I identify. I identify as at least a little bit religious on that front, but I also believe that. And so by looking at these different categories together, we can get a picture of people who are in some way what I call religiously remixed, who are taking elements of their religious life from organized religion, from the world of new age, from what I call intuitionalist models of religion that tend to focus on the self feeling kind of what works for you as a guiding principle, and from the kind of panoply of contemporary cultural options that are religion adjacent, things like wellness culture, or mindfulness that are somewhat spiritual or or designed for spiritual well-being, but exist very much in the contemporary capitalistic marketplace. So that's, that's sort of how you get your remixed. And my sort of numerically, if you kind of put all these groups together, I think a conservative estimate is about 50% of Americans. But I, I, would, I would venture to say through a mix of, I think, study and conjecture that almost every single American is, you know, has been exposed to this, is involved in some way in this because this is just part of the cultural landscape now. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. That's really, really interesting. And I guess all of this, you know, the remixing is not new because in your book, you, you talk about Thomas Jefferson and that in, in 1820, he created for himself a bespoke Bible. You know, he cut and pasted the lines from the Gospels that he thought best reflected his vision of Christ, excluding those passages like miracles that didn't quite fit. And uh, he produced what came to be known as the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. So in a sense, Jefferson was one of the first religious hybrids, and, and I guess we're all doing the same, so none of this is new. Can you trace some of this stuff for us, where this American remixing practice began? Absolutely. So, I mean, there's two answers to that question, and I think one is that for the entirety of its history, uh, for a variety of reasons, there's always been what I want to call the intuitionalist strain in American religious thought, which is to say a general tendency towards the uh, religion as something private, intimate, relational. And I think you, you, you can trace that to the separation of church and state. You can tra- trace that to the influence of kind of English evangelical movements in the country. You, you, you can trace it to Protestant Reformation. Like there, 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 there's so much there that you can say, okay, we've got a general tendency that is distinctly American from Jefferson onward. That said, I think the very particular intuitionalist model that we see kind of today, I would trace back to new thought, uh, the transcendentalists by a new thought, which is to say the sort of American romantic vision of the emotional self, as you would see in in Thoreau or in particularly in Ralph Waldo Emerson, where the kind of underlying vision of the self is as divine, but trapped by society in a particular way that, um, in a sense, the bad guy out there, the, the thing that is holding us back from being the, who we truly are is external and is other people or is 
the construct of society as something that is holding us back from our most authentic selves. And that's something like Emerson is quite explicit about. And I think that mid 19th century, largely New England based philosophical movement got really popularized in the 1860s and onward with the development of something called new thought, which we can think of as like the first self help craze in America. It started out as a a sort of faith healing and became something much more intense. But basically, the idea behind it was that there's there are spiritual forces or energies out there in the universe that you, you can be in touch with. And that by focusing your energy, you can actually affect your material life. And this began with Phineas Quimby, a New England clockmaker, very much as a way of curing ailments. If you want to get better, you will. And then became uh, kind of much more about, do you want to make money? Then you will. In the Gilded Age, there was a whole set of new thought books by people like Walter William Atkinson about uh, things like, you know, Think and grow rich. Uh, imagine yourself making money, manifesting it, to use a term that is pop, uh, popular nowadays. And basically, your desire is a kind of magical force. And that, I think, in particular, set the stage for more contemporary iterations of the intuitionalist model, which blend a focus on inwardness, a focus on the self, and a suspicion of society and societal institutions with the promise of, let's say, material or financial or aesthetic reward, which is to say you will, your skin will clear up and you'll be super healthy and you'll look great and you'll be rich and you'll have everything you want and you'll have everything you want in this world if you focus your spiritual energy correctly. Um, this is also, this is not exclusive to the religiously unaffiliated, the proliferation of the prosperity gospel in as many as 40% of American evangelical churches, I think is testament to the fact that this tendency can be like embedded within religious orthodoxy as well as outside of it. But I think the legacy of new thought in America, uh, the kind of blend of self-help, faith in the capitalist system, and this kind of inward-looking divinization of the self those things, I think, we all have to, like, we have new thought to think for all of that. Right. And, and I guess it's it's all very broadly embedded in society. I mean, there are certain phrases that have become very common in our vocabulary today that seem to have emerged from, from the development of the new set of intuitional religions. I mean, these are phrases like self-care, you know, best life, lived experience, what do these things mean? Are, are they are they a reflection of sort of the self-focused nature of the intuitional ethos? I think so. I mean, I think, I mean, self-care, of course, has its own particular legacy in, in activist circles before kind of being popularized in a much less politically engaged way now. I think that we don't really have robust notions, culturally shared collectivist civic notions about how what the good life looks like, what our purpose is, our telos, to use a slightly pretentious Greek word. And, but I think in the absence of a shared sense of like, what are we for? As well as a lack of trust, the absence of trust in any kind of institution that might help us encounter a sense of purpose or, or community. Statistically, if you look at institutional trust uh, by age, it's astonishing the drop off, whether whether we're talking about uh, the military or the uh, political establishment, journalistic establishment, the police, basically any institution you can think of, you will have 
seniors display massively higher levels or percentages of, of trust than, than younger people. And it just gets more and more true. And I think in the absence of a trusted institution, self becomes the closest thing you have to something you know you can rely on. The narrative would go something like, well, at least you know you're not lying to you. Uh, not that self-deception isn't possible. But. And I think that the focus on the self and the focus on not just self-care and this sort of secondary meaning of meaning pure self-focus rather than its original um, activist context. Self-care does become about, or best life does become about the fact that like our experience of our life is the sort of only thing that we know that we have, even as we don't necessarily have a sense, a shared collective sense of what our life is actually for. And in the absence of that purpose, you know, what is there but our best life? Like, in the absence of the good life, let's say, the the best life becomes the kind of thing on which we hang all of our impulses towards meaning or purpose or perfection. Now, in, in the context of liberalism, you know, a society that is based on freedom, equality, and, and, and pluralism, one might say that the emergence of, you know, multiple intuitional religions, you know, with people customizing their own religious experiences and practices is, you know, sort of a good thing, right? You know, there's a growing demand for meaning, purpose, community, and rituals, and there's a supply to meet that demand. Is there anything wrong with this phenomenon? Yes, um, it's my short answer. I think that the model whereby religion is reduced from the attempt to make truth claims about the meaningfulness of the universe or and to put them into narrative form, say, when that becomes replaced by a sense of religion as a set of needs that we can fill, perhaps even through purchasing the right products or subscribing to, I don't know, the right substacks. It becomes very much about the building of a personal brand through the curation of a spiritual experience. What feels good to me? What do I want to say about myself? What, you know, when I have my wedding or a funeral or what have you, what story am I telling about who I am? These all no longer have any reference to a concept of quote-unquote objective truth or to truth claims about the world. And as a result, I think there is a danger that they can become unchallenging in certain ways, reifications of and divinizations of our most unchallenged self. And I think that, you know, at worst, and I think we see this in like certain elements, the wellness community in particular, spiritual well-being starts to look a lot like spending a lot of money on products to make you conventionally attractive or to look expensively put together and there's a sort of odd disingenuous link between well this is actually a form of like spiritual wellness for me but actually it's just looking a lot like material success with a little moral like veneer of moral purity on it and that's the part where i'm suspicious at the same time though and i think this is a really important caveat um i think there's a sort of often conservative they're not exclusively narrative that goes like the kids these days, but they're also selfish. And if we just had, you know, 
return to the Catholic Church and return to Mother Church and then we'll, all the evils of liberal modernity will be solved. Like, that is also not true. And I think particularly it cannot be overstated that, like, ecclesiastical institutions, to say nothing of institutions more broadly, have profoundly failed. I mean, why should the Catholic Church or any other uh, church with a history of, of whether it's sex abuse scandals, whether it's a history of marginalizing queer people, 40% of queer Americans are religiously unaffiliated, almost twice the national average, whether there's sort of any legacy that a lot of these institutions have is a legacy of marginalization, of, of causing pain, of, of spiritual abuse, either on the level of the abuse of individuals or sort of ideologically the marginalization of people sort of on a collective level. Like, why should we trust these institutions? And I, I think that against that background, certain kinds of grassroots spiritual new religions or ways in which people find spiritual meaning like outside of institutions they're not doing this because all millennials are selfish narcissists they're doing this because this is the only way that they're able to access in many cases spiritual life or spiritual communities that are not toxic and harmful i think that those two things always have to be looked at against sort of in tandem which is to say yes we are like there are many reasons to be suspicious of remix religion but it's also vital to keep in mind the ways in which religious remixing has provided an avenue for people experiencing marginalization from traditional religious communities to have robust spiritual and sometimes communal lives. Right. Now, does this affect, you know, particularly the, the rejection of, of truth claims, objective truth and, and, and these things, does this also affect, you know, the, the way that we get facts and information, how does this affect sort of the accuracy of, of, of claims of information, people in, in different echo chambers, you know, in their own sort of subcultures and deciding to trust what, you know, news sources that, that exists and so on and so forth. Because I think you talk about issues of balkanization and, and tribalism as well in the book. Is this, is this related? Absolutely. I think maybe the way that I would frame the problem is that, distrust in institutions, including in the kind of uh, knowledge traditionally produced by institutions, such as, say, scientific papers, let's say, mean that I think that there's a, an increasing tendency, and this is, this is perhaps most commonly talked about as a right-wing phenomenon, which is to say, you know, QAnon or anti-vax theories or what have you, but I think it's, it's more broadly true, that we don't trust institutions. We do not trust, uh, as a polity, the quote unquote mainstream media. And I think that even people who, who largely do are, are increasingly willing to entertain suspicion of a post in the post Trump era, post coronavirus in particular, there is a sense in which existing cultural biases towards intuitionalism, towards the self as an authoritative source on uh, all of life, including perhaps instinct as a key to scientific truth. I think this has already been true. And the kind of intensification of the past five years has has only made that more true. And I think now the, you know, the, the sort of, well, sure, the this, this newspaper says that, but it doesn't, it feels fishy to me, it doesn't seem right. Combined with the fact that we have access now, whoever we are, whatever our political affiliation, 
to a wealth of algorithmically selected sources propping up our own intuitions. Uh, our you know, Literally, like, whatever we kind of think is true, we are likely to reflect that in our social media posts or Google search history, which is just going to kind of put us on the algorithm train to being reinforced in certain ways. All of that means that we... We are all surrounded by little miniature bespokeified worldviews that are constantly supported by new information that we lead ourselves slash are led to find online. So absolutely. That's really interesting. Now, the role of the internet, right? I mean, I, I think, you know, you talk about the printing press ushering in a new age of sort of transmitting information and sharing knowledge, which transformed religion, right? The rise of uh, Protestantism. Is this what the internet is doing for the, you know, remixing of, of religions? Absolutely. I do think that the the printing press of the remixed age is very much, uh, is very much the internet. And I think particularly the way in which the internet primed us to think of ourselves as having the right, perhaps even the entitlement to be active consumers of information to shape that information in ways that we want and to sort of let the algorithms underpinning everything kind of help us with a kind of curation of the self. I think all of this arose out of internet culture and in particular, those of us who grew up with it, which is to say millennials and younger who grew up online, I think learned to develop and in adulthood reproduce this. I often think fandom in particular, online fandom is a really good window into this tendency because you you have people who started out reading a text appreciating a text uh, harry potter fan fiction i think is actually the best example here uh, because it was the most popular it also sort of came out at the right time the harry potter books coming out just at the like dawn of personal home internet access in the united states but you'd start out talking about a text, you'd find other people to talk about this text online with, then you'd form communities around your personal interpretations and interests of the text, uh, you start writing fan fiction, uh, reimagining the characters in ways that you prefer, maybe, you know, Harry is not supposed to end up with Ginny, he's supposed to end up with Hermione, and so we're going to do a, you know, reimagine that. And suddenly the the kind of model for how we think about engaging with artistic phenomena, firstly, but I think this is now true of like, as true of spiritual texts as it is of quote-unquote artistic texts, the fan culture is very much, this is something that I own as much as the author owns. This is something that is for me to reshape. And in, in some ways, there is actually the shade of something much older there into sort of pre-written traditions where stories could be reformed in that way. But I think that that fan culture, which absolutely dominates how like media works now we think of the ways in which movies are like marvel movies are constructed for the fans in a way that is, is quite explicit but i think that that is sort of more broadly true that we're all used to reimagining things in ways that work for us this is just the the, the basic way that culturally we in 21st century america approach most information is how do what do we do with it how do we shape it how do we create ourselves or recreate our worlds around it. And I think that is very much the uh, the legacy of internet culture. I don't know how you go back to a kind of more receptive rather than active creative model of 
interaction or ownership. Right. And you'd say that the fan culture, you know, gave us a lot of experience with, you know, sort of meaning, community, ritual, and, and purpose. We were learning how to sort of develop a, a culture around that. Absolutely. And specifically cultures that are, this was true in the case of internet fandom, that are, are organized around affinity rather than geography or physical presence. You, know, you, you can meet someone halfway across the country or halfway across the world. You both have the same ship in whatever fandom. Suddenly, you know, you're all in whether it's a message board together or a listserv or a closed live journal. I mean, the precise medium has depends on, on exactly what year you're talking, but you can forge an online community, online friendships, and a kind of sense of purpose and identity around something that you love rather than perhaps facts about you that might seem given but not chosen where you grow up the street you live on the religious community your family belongs to and i think that that way of thinking about affinity as the kind of force underpinning social interaction how do i find my tribe and what does my tribe consist of it consists of people who like the same things as me i think that's a very specific move that the internet and internet culture made possible. Right. And, and this, this I find very interesting, you know, on page, you know, 163 of your book, you, you cite a 2019 study that found that about 30% of millennial report experiencing loneliness compared to 20% of Gen Xers and 15% of baby boomers. You know, if there's all this community and, and, uh, you know, connecting with people who have a shared affinity and so on, how come we see this high level of, of loneliness? I will say, I don't know for sure, but my conjecture is based on my work in Strange Rights, is that it is generally good for us as people to have the kinds of rootedness that we don't choose. That when we think of ourselves exclusively as creatures of affinity, in some ways that causes us to think about what we do and who we do it with as being kind of downstream of, of who we are and what we want. I'm doing this hobby and I'm doing this hobby that I like with these people who also like this thing. And at the end, it's something that I'm getting. It is, it is at times difficult to forge the kind of communal bonds that I think make us all, maybe I'm letting my, my idealism show here, but making us all better. And I think there has to be some contingency to human relationships, some sense in which, you know, the, this is our community. This is whether it's biological family or chosen family. These are the people in our lives. And at times we will not always um, agree in certain ways or see eye to eyes in, cer in certain ways, but we, we still have to kind of experience what it is to, to live together and live in common. And I think that at worst, especially when they are, as is the case with a lot of online communities, exclusively online, these are not people that we are kind of confronted with day-to-day, -day, you know, in, in the flesh, so to speak. Um, I think that there is a real risk that we kind of forget what life in common looks like. And and I think certainly, I this is not always true. I, mean, I, I can think of like online communities in which I met real life friends and where I sort of developed communities from online. And that's one thing. But I think that when communities stay on the level of some simulacra of social engagement and it's all disembodied. Those are precisely the kind of surface level connections that vanish when we need something real. Now, so, you know, you, you talk about three emerging 
civil religions, social justice movement uh, folks, you know, techno-utopians and the atavistic right. Basically, they challenge orthodox ideas and institutions. But one thing I kept thinking about, though, was, you know, the first two social justice and and techno-utopians, they seem to reflect uh, the views of of coastal elites, whereas the third is sort of a reaction to, to both. Did you get that sense? Yes, and no. I mean that's not actually the framing that I would use. I think that right. coastal elites is a complicated phenomenon, and I think that mm-hmm. I'm not even sure that I would call these things groups. Um, I actually think trends or or sort of hermeneutic trends might be the better way of thinking about it because um, mm-hmm. I, I want to make a quick caveat. Um, I, I think of the social justice movement of the techno utopianism and as atavism as not con- uh, or reactionary atavism as not necessarily like morally comparable to each other at all, but just um, ways in which disparate remixed culture is sort of coalescing around certain certain worldviews. But I don't actually think that they're in some ways incompatible. I mean, they on the surface, they seem quite incompatible with each other. But I think we actually see, for example, like the conflation of certain kind of atavistic attitudes and the sort of techno-utopian attitudes in fans of Peter Thiel, where those two things are quite closely linked, or, you know, the extreme, the extreme versions of the like extremely online far far right do tend to sort of take elements there or you can talk about kind of hyper liberal in the sense of not in the sense of progressive in the sense of like liberalism liberal hyper liberal like news organizations that also want to talk about like individualistic best life but want to use the ethos and language of social justice and post liberal leftist rhetoric but we'll like we'll want to use it for their own ends because you know it is a let me think of a better way to put this uh, because they have uh, an economic interest in seeming progressive. So I think that these are, there's actually a lot of fluidity between these movements. That these are these are not okay. some are elite, some are anti elite. I think increasingly it is porous the ways in which these these trends kind of interact with one another. Do you get any uh, pushback from from those in any one of these? three categories, let's say, you know, fans of, you know, Peter Thiel or, you know, fans of, you know, Jordan Peterson say, you know, no, 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 we, we don't think of ourselves as as religions, uh, right? You know, do, do you get that kind of pushback? Sometimes, uh, le- less than I think I would have thought, which is to say, um, I, I think that the claims I make are sufficiently, um, I, I don't want to say, and I think this is a popular, like, trope, like, social justice is a religion. I think this is something that, like, gets bandied about a lot, particularly in, cons- in conservative spaces, and is often a code of a code of saying, these people are crazy cultists. And that's always the subtext. That's, that's not at all what I'm interested in saying. And I think the more, perhaps, cautious um, read, which is that there are ways in which our ideas about uh, collective cultural ideas about the self, about what we owe to each other, about how we process information and what what it means to be human i think these questions are coalescing in certain ways around certain shared vocabularies i think the word orthodoxies would be overstating it but certain shared ideas and i think that there are very there are fewer people who would say belonging to any of these sort of intellectual spaces no like i I think people are, are 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 quite willing to say yes these are this is this is a sort of discursive corner and here are here we there is a sort of shared ideology here and this does 
impact how I form community. This does impact how I perceive the world around me. So I think that that gentler claim has been perhaps easier to defend. Now, before we move on, can you explain to our audience what social justice and, and techno-utopian and, and atavistic categories are? Sure. With the caveat that all of this is a bit reductionist, as, as any um, categorization is, I think, broadly speaking, the, the three ways that we see contemporary remix culture coalesce into bodies of thought that are slightly more established, though still themselves fluid, broadly speaking, social justice movement, progressive, suspicious of certain liberal notions of neutrality, wedded to ideas of truth that take seriously ways in which different people as a result of their experiences, both in a particular body and in a particular society, might experience the world extremely differently in ways in which that like perspective is not immediately transferable. Then I think you have the sort of hyper-liberal uh, techno-utopians who... Mm-hmm of whom the sort of Silicon Valley crowd is the most obvious, but also sort of visions of using technology, using expertise, using, quote unquote, the facts to have mastery over mastery over technology for the purpose of hacking human life that we are going to optimize. So I think that's the vision of the techno-utopians. And then finally, the, the what I call the reactionary atavists, people who think also an anti-liberal group, who basically want to return to certain kinds of essentialism, often to do with gender or to do um, at the sort of far right end with race, where there is a sense that the liberal liberal order is flawed in certain kinds of distinction and that there is a, a fascination with hierarchy, a fascination with evolution, a fascination with human beings as as animals who who exist in a very particular kind of biological order. And obviously these groups are, are quite distinct from one another. And I want to be clear that I'm making absolutely no uh, moral claims about parity between and, or among any of them. But I do think that there, there are different ways in which we, America has responded to questions about liberalism, about the self, about what we are for and what parts of us are really us or authentically us and what parts of us are are changeable or subject to change. And these are three distinct and politically loaded responses to that question. Very interesting. Which one are you most concerned about and which one are you most optimistic about? Sure. I think... I I am by far most concerned about the kind of reactionary atavism. Like I think that of of the groups you've seen, these are this is this is the group in which violence has most frequently broken out. Uh, whether we're talking about things like January sixth, or we're talking about various killings in like um the like the Alec Manassian or or Elliot Rogers um, killings by sort of self proclaimed incels, that is the corner of the internet uh, about which I am most concerned of the three. That said, I am most optimistic. Conversely, I think I think the questions being asked by the social justice movement are generally the most fruitful. Um, I think that the kind of 
vision of a better world and a world that is structured along certain kinds of mutuality and interdependence, um, I think that that is sort of a vital point that does need to be reiterated in the public sphere. And I think the kind of challenge of liberal notions of neutrality specifically when recognizing that we are in bodies, we are in culture, we are not fully self-creating beings. And we, our experiences are shaped by ways in which we, ways in which we do not choose. I, I think that is something that, that we are sort of need to recover in the public square. And it is something that I'm very glad that we are through this kind of discourse recovering. That is where my optimism lies. And I think I'm just also generally suspicious of a of the techno-utopians, but it's but it a sort of a general healthy suspicion rather than worrying about, I don't know, the accidental creation of sentient AI, AI or something. <laughs> right. Now, as we close out, do you have any concluding thoughts or call to action that you'd like readers to take away from, from your book? Yeah, I think that on the one hand, I think that there's something very heartening that particularly younger Americans are actively interested in and hunger for spiritual fulfillment, for a kind of communal mutuality that our modern world does not often allow. And I think that there is actually a lot of reason for optimism when we look at the remix as a phenomenon. I think the place to be wary and the place to be critical is not at the level of, of individual people, but to say, who is trying to make money off this? Who is monetizing this? And I think the kind of nightmarish world that I would like to see uh, changed is the way in which moral hunger gets reimagined as a consumer good. Thinking of the ways that, you know, Galette and Dove and various corporations will use, whether it's the language of social justice or the language of spiritual well-being in advertisements in order to sell products as moral goods. And I think that, that that's what we really have to watch out for culturally is the kind of commodification of our spiritual lives. Great. Well, on that note, Dr. Tara Burton, thank you so much for taking the time to, to speak with us. Really appreciate this. This was a very insightful book and uh, I learned a lot from this conversation as well. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Discourse Magazine podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And please feel free to share this podcast with like-minded friends and to leave us a review. We're always happy to hear from you. Finally, check out Discourse Magazine, which is available free online at www.discoursemagazine.com. Thanks again, and see you next time.